there was a lovely movie in the 90s, I think, starring American actor Kevin Costner. It's a movie about this person in the middle of the cornfields of Iowa. He hears a voice and says, build a baseball field. And people think he's crazy. And all he hears is, build it and they will come. He hears this sentence again and again, build it and they will come. And he builds a baseball field. What Nartaki.com did was build that field of possibilities. Namaste and welcome to Indian Artpreneur. I am your host, Shwet Nag. On today's episode, we have a very special guest, Dr. Anita Ratnam, who is highly respected as a performer, writer, speaker, arts entrepreneur, and a cultural mentor. For over four decades, she gave over 1,300 performances in 37 countries. She is formerly trained in Bharatanatyam, Mohiniyattam, and Kathakali. Dr. Ratnam served as the member of the executive board of the Sangeet Natak Academy and the ICCR. She is a recipient of several prestigious awards from cultural institutions for her work. Some of them which I list, Nitya Chudamani in 1996, Kalai Mamani in 1998, Vishwakala Bharati in 2013, and first Chinmayanada Bindu Puraskar in 2020. As a cultural entrepreneur, Dr. Ratnam has founded Nartaki.com, the largest internet portal on Indian dance, and this interview today is about her journey in establishing Nartaki and the very recently launched Neo Nartaki. So let's talk to Dr. Anita Hi, Anita. Welcome to Indian Artpreneur. It's our honor to have you. you on our show. I want to start talking about the video you posted on your Instagram, the Andal Fasting and Feasting, where you beautifully explained the mythological stories and associated it with the food on the table. You also gave away a secret recipe for authentic yogurt rice. Throughout <laughs> that video, I learned many things about you. Number one, that you are a professional storyteller. Number two, that you have excellent presentation skills. Number three, at the end of the video, the way you give credit to the staff who prepared the prasad. This itself is a simple lesson embedded about your professional work ethic. With that pretext, I would like to ask my first question, how professional are artists today? Has it improved a lot compared to the past? Thank you for that very generous observation about the Andal day. And um, I learned uh, my entire work ethic, Shwetnag, has come during my years of living in the United States. I was a television producer for 10 years, between 1980 and 1990. And in the US, it doesn't matter who your father is or what your family background is, or even who your life partner is, it's what you bring to, to the table. And also, uh, it helps develop your interpersonal skills. Television, very much like dance, is a group activity. One person can be the host or the producer or the director, but it's really important to have the entire group as stakeholders. Everybody should be treated like equals, and everybody must be able to buy into this vision that you had and you hope to translate. Having said that, my generation has had to learn about work ethic and professionalism and teamwork. And today's young people, professionals, including dance and music professionals, I think have learned much quicker. Today, if you're not professional, you can't get far. 
But what do we really mean when we say professional? We use the word loosely because in the Indian dance, especially uh, less more than music, the dance activity tends to be still within family and household. And in India, if you're a performer, it's much harder to um, make money and it's much easier to make money if you're a dance teacher. Yet, how is an attitude shaped as a professional? To quickly answer your question, I will say, my generation has had to learn about professionalism and I learned it by leaving dance and leaving India to work in a different field in a very, very competitive city like New York in America, in television and a weekly television news and entertainment show. I had to be professional. I had to be punctual. I had to think of teamwork. Otherwise I could not sustain the program that was very successful for 10 years. In India, it's much harder to learn about professionalism if the family is going to be involved in your work because you are constantly trying to please somebody. You're constantly trying to get approval from somebody. You're constantly looking for, you're looking beautiful, you're looking pretty, you're looking this. And let's remind ourselves about one thing. The dancer becomes the diva ultimately and the musicians or the support system, the orchestra, the students, all rarely occupy the same level at, in that kind of class structure. Somehow the dancer or the performer or the guru or the teacher ends up being at a different level from the students, the student's family and the musicians. So we need to rethink what we mean by the word professional. It has to go beyond money. It has to go about, be about attitude. It also has to be about inclusivity and about bringing a democratic uh, spirit into every project and initiative. That's what I have tried to do through Nartaki.com and in everything that I do. Today, the Guru Shishya system we have mostly is limited to teaching the art form. Do you think we should use that setting also to teach ethics, giving credits, values of not using proprietary material, etc., to the students? I think that the entire teaching module has to be re-examined. It's very, very important. I think the time of um, uh, not just touching the Guru's feet, but surrendering to the Guru has passed. I think today's young people are very curious, very impatient, and less prone to this complete spirit of surrender. Now, yes, we have to go beyond classroom material, that is article item. We have to go beyond dance history, dance theory, we have to go more into the history of the form that you're studying, be it Bharatanatyam, or be it Kathak, or be it Mohiniyattam, or Odissi. All these forms that we now say are classical had roots, they had stories, they came from other kinds of communities, they came from histories that were complex and sometimes messy, 
sometimes full of tension. So I think it's very important that you use the word ethics. I think that if we teach our students, dance students, the history of the dance form they're studying, what's and all, I say, without having using selective uh, honesty and selective picking, say, this is how it was. And um, let's talk about some role models. Let's talk about some stories of real life artists, hereditary artists. All the forms had hereditary artists. In fact, Mohiniyattam, the form itself was uh, created with the invitation of Maharaja Swadi Tirnar. And two people came from Tanjavur, from Bharatanatyam country, to go to Kerala. And the form itself was set on the body of a Bharatanatyam dancer. So why don't we learn this history? Why don't we learn the, the uh, continual collaboration across geographies and across styles? So you talk of ethics, yes. We have to know about copyright. We have to know about the origin of uh, music, of composition. And with the digital media now, Shwetnag, when we're seeing so much product and content on the digital platform, the issue of copyright has been really thrown up uh, front and center. We're having so many YouTube strikes by producers saying this music belongs to us. Now, it could be sometimes plain mischievous, but copyright is looked at very, very strictly in the world of cinema. You can't play with cinema and their film clips and music. Now in dance, we are seeing it emerge. And sometimes it is mischievous, but it is wise for a teacher to alert the students, even when they give recordings, that we start looking at uh, contracts, we start looking at signed agreements. We've never had that. We somehow look at contracts suspiciously. Why do you need to sign something? Don't you trust me? You know, so much is oral, so much is just verbal. But I think part of being a professional today now is to have contracts. So I think that is also something that we must look at seriously and that we must begin to enforce in our dance classes. Once the teacher knows that the student is going to aspire to be a professional, even for a short duration of his or her lifetime. Excellent. Um, now coming to my next question. In career spanning four decades, you have given 1,500 performances in 27 countries. I would like to ask at this point in your life, combining all your experience, what is your view on the role of art and artist in our society? Our society, Indian society, global, world society, uh, the pandemic has proven one thing, Shwetnag, that for the first time we're all in the same situation. Whether you're an artist, whether you're a chaiwala, whether you're a potter, whether you're an IT specialist, we're all connecting through the same flat screen. We have at least for the past 11 months. But where does an artist get the constant nourishment to sustain himself or herself when the very word artist means, the, the presence means you have to perform, you have to show your art, you have to make your art visible. And for that, you need an audience, you need a market, you need spectators, you need people, especially the live arts. How are we viewed? I would say quite um, 
honestly, that the Indian government has forgotten the artist. It's one thing to uh, say India shining or incredible India and to have dance, dancers on posters or, or musicians on posters for tourism and to have um, festivals like Khajuraho and Ajanta, Elora and Konarak. But actually, after you remove the makeup and you take away all the aharya and you look at the kind of remuneration that a performing artist receives after all those hours of hard work and sweat and toil and the constant, constant uh, return and application to the, the craft of dance or music. The remuneration is so pathetic in India. And if we talk of professionalism, money must play an important role in the conversation and in the negotiation. In India, artists largely fend for themselves, which is the truth. I would say that in that case, what happens, especially in the world of dance? How does one sustain oneself? Performance in India doesn't sustain you. Teaching does. So many good artists who could have been good performers then have to resort to teaching to keep the fires burning, to keep the kitchen going, to pay the bills, and they, they perform less. In other countries, like Norway, like in Europe, there is a specific arts council and arts budget. And I remember reading with great admiration, both Germany and France, even when they were uh, assigning so much money for the pandemic, for the care, and you had so many people actually dying in Europe, that they didn't cut the arts budget. Because in those countries, they felt that you have to keep the artists alive and stimulated and encouraged and supported. And I think that's such an important view. It is an important view because what do people do to nourish themselves? Even for you, how did you spend your time in COVID if you did not watch movies, if you did not watch live stream performances, if you did not have the arts, what would you have done at the end of the day? So why are we not looking more seriously at artists? And no matter what Europe does or other countries do, uh, I think Britain, I think Canada, I think Australia have shown that they are looking at the artists, I think with more respect and more care, but it never seems to be enough. But certainly in India, I think we are famous for double speak. We say one thing about the glory of our great 5,000 year old civilization, but the very people who are keeping it alive, the artists, the dancers, the musicians, the sculptors, the craftsmen, the storytellers, the folk artists are really just left to either fall between the cracks or fend for themselves. And many have, we've lost many people during this year of uh, the COVID. Many people have had mental health issues. Many people have fallen into deep depression. Many have just lost their lives. Many have given up hope. So the artist needs to be more celebrated.
The artist needs to be more discussed, more valued, more uh, become more of a role model. Why do we only have film stars and cricketers in India? Why can't artists who have a longer life? I mean, you talk about me having all you know so many decades. I've had five decades, five decades. I mean, can you think of uh, art or people? Politicians maybe have decades because they won't give up their seat. But can cricketers play for fifty years? Can film stars hang in there for fifty years? No. And yet, why don't we have artists as role models? Why can't we have artists even as brand ambassadors? So we really need to rethink our values and how we look at the artists today. That was a really good answer. you have touched so many points which i'll come back again um, when i was looking at your tedx you know where you spoke about the three women who played important yes uh, role in your life i was also yes. curious to learn about your childhood and what kind of kid you were the kind you go in depth with everything you take beat the food like you remembered the norwegian food now uh, when you came here i i'm very curious to learn about you uh, anita Okay, let me tell you one thing. I am um, born on the cusp of Taurus and Gemini, May twenty first, right? So you can say I've, I've got three different personalities because Gemini itself is is the twins, the Janus face twins that are looking in two opposite directions. Yeah, and um, I, I'm quick. I can memorize quickly. I could memorize in theater class full pages of monologues, but I've been given this. a uh, quality of being eternally curious i'm curious about life i'm curious about food i'm curious curious about uh, cuisine of the world i'm curious about good wine in norway uh, or anywhere i go i go to the local market anywhere i go i go to the local food market i want to know where people buy their groceries where do they buy fruits where do they buy spices what uh, what time do people wake up um i was taken to a meat market a fish market but i would just go wherever i go and i like to to watch the people uh, shop in new york where i lived i would take the subway on a day when i didn't have too many deadlines and i would ride the subway from one end to the other and all i would do is watch faces and with each subway stop people would get off and get on and there would be different kinds of people that would come in because new york is a city of communities you know from one part you'd have the chinese and you have the korean then you would have the hispanic the latin latin americans the puerto ricans and then you would have the italians and the other immigrant the irish so it was so fascinating for me to just see faces uh so that's the kind of childhood i was given i was given a childhood in which at the end of the day at the dinner table my parents would say so what new information did you learn today and we had to discuss it either we learnt it by reading we, either we learnt it by conversation remember i grew up before there was television and cell phones so really was reading or going to uh, an elder's home uh, or listening to the radio listening to to the radio was a big source of how the world came to us at that time and also you know on both sides of my family we had uh, people who fought for india's freedom and went to jail so there were lots and lots of great stories of people who sacrificed 
My grandfather on my mother's side was jailed by the Japanese in Singapore in Changi prison for two and a half years during the Second World War. Mm -hmm. And stories of how he escaped torture. Uh, you know, these are the stories, real life stories that we grew up with. Uh, who helped found Oroville? Who did this? Who fought the British? Who went and got arrested? So these were like, they were already like, Marvel's, you know, heroes for me and my my generation growing up. So I didn't have film stars as heroes. I didn't have to cut out any film star photograph and like other young girls have either a Rajesh Khanna or somebody, you know, uh, whose photo I would put up. My family were my were my role models. So curiosity, uh, never to be afraid to fail. You fall down. You get hurt, it's only a wound. Get up, brush it off, keep going, keep going. Most importantly, we were all forced to play sports. Sports was like a key to our lives. If you play sports, then you learn how to win and lose even in life. You learn how to win gracefully, you learn how to lose gracefully. The arts doesn't teach you that. In the arts, you are very narcissistic. It's that mirror you look at. You look at your reflection, you think that is the world. And most artists, especially dancers, find it very hard to put that reflection, put that mirror down and to look around. I was taught how to look around and to develop a sense of humor. I laugh and I laugh loudly. And I think we need to laugh more. We need to take ourselves less seriously and to take our work more seriously. So the kind of childhood I had was to be eternally curious, always never be afraid to face a new adventure, uh, never be afraid of failure. Failure is not a crime. And always ask questions. Fantastic. I mean, all these, uh, you know, knowledge which the school won't teach and what you have brilliantly put. And uh, unfortunately, we have made systems that act against some of these principles. Don't ask questions. Listen to what I say. This is coming from the teacher. Just take it blindly, note it down, write it in the paper and go out, you know. But we never experiment. We never encourage to fail. And I think that's a lesson to our, uh, our generation is it's okay to fail. And still, even if the world doesn't accept, you develop acceptance for your own self, you know, with yourself, as you said. With that, I'll uh, go to the next question. Does OTT platforms like Netflix, Amazon Prime, etc., pose a threat to Indian classical dance shows or plays? Because people are choosing that as an alternate, alternative entertainment. I'm a big cinema buff. I love movies. I love cop shows. I love detective shows. I love a lot of action and, and adventure shows. So I'm a big cinema buff. That, that should not really interfere with the live arts. I, I think we're looking at two very different things. When there was cinema, television came, they said television will kill cinema. It hasn't really, right? We're all waiting to get back to the theaters. We're all waiting for us to be small and for that screen to be big because Television is something you can watch lying down in bed between your toes, literally. And uh, this OTT platform cannot be a substitute for watching a theater performance or a dance performance. Music has, I would say, the advantage 
you can even go to a live music performance you can close your eyes and you can say like you know wonderful wow but you can't watch a dance performance closing your eyes you got to open your eyes now how can you sustain interest in even the most incredible dancer when you're watching him or her on your cell phone and the person is just this this high and at the most we will watch on an ipad still they will be this high and i don't think any of us are casting it on our television because we're watching in our cars we're watching it maybe at the dinner table we're watching it on our work desk we're watching it in so many different ways i don't think that the live arts are going to suffer i think there will be a period in which as the world gets vaccinated and we slowly start stepping out we're going to test the waters i think the hybridity of having something for the ott platform and something on stage is going to become more clearly defined i don't think just performing dance like we learned in class and what we're supposed to do uh, on stage translates well all the time on this platform i think what the ott platform has thrown up especially for classical dance and contemporary dance is the role of the cameraman and the editor we never thought of these two disciplines of these two uh, technical uh, technicians as being crucial now to how we watch dance if it's uh, with a good cameraman if the editing is good if the audio quality is good then you know you can actually enjoy a short clip of a classical dance performance but many times the filming is so poor the camera angles are so poor the audio is poor so it really defeats the purpose to come back to answer your question in a brief uh, shweknag i don't think netflix amazon prime hotstar disney uh, are going to in any way make a dent in live performances but it will take time already i have accepted to act in a play on the 10th of april i myself i'm going to test the waters i'm going back on stage after a year and but the audience has to sit with social distancing so you'll only have half the auditorium filled so it's you're still going to be watching bodies empty seat body empty seat it's going to be a new experience even for the for the actor for the performer we are going to have to see how that that new alchemy happens but i'm confident that live arts has to it has to it has to survive because i think that's really where it lives that's where life lives that's where the flutter of the heart lives i think in that live moment when you are performing in the same moment and people are sitting there around you in front of you at the same moment in the same time in the same space nothing can actually duplicate this ott platform digital streaming it all becomes part of time lapse and for me the potency of live arts can never be diminished so i'm hoping that those of us who take our work seriously those of us who are committed to dance and to the live arts will hopefully rethink what we are doing that is going to be the biggest challenge for us that will be foolish i'll tell you the biggest biggest change our attention span are we willing to sit in a theater for a full hour 
without swiping our phones, left, right, and center, without sending Instagram texts, without using Telegram or WhatsApp or Facebook or Signal, that's going to be the biggest challenge for us as performers and audience. Okay. Uh, in one of the interviews, you mentioned that Chennai alone has thousand schools that teach Bharatanatyam, meaning that at this scale, Chennai alone produces thousand dances every year. So when it comes to the dance, how is the demand and supply equation? Are we producing more dances than the number of opportunities? Absolutely. Absolutely. If we look at uh, Bharatanatyam in uh, Tamil Nadu or Chennai, it's, uh, and we look at the market, it is completely, we are supply far exceeds the demand. We haven't had enough uh, mushrooming of other opportunities. The same systems, the same um, old sabha sort of uh, conclaves, uh, which have started 50, 60, 70 years ago, still persist. Now, maybe if you want to ask me what is the small changes, we have art that's happening on the terrace, art that's happening in small public spaces, art that's happening in the park. And the good thing about it in India, unlike in Europe, is that a serious dance critic or an art critic will not attend a performance in a park unless it's part of a big banner summer festival to review, to attend and review. Here in India, I can have a performance in my home, which can accommodate 50 people, and I can have it reviewed in, the, in a large paper. You know, so that, that level of informality still exists. We don't have what is called a serious performance. You can have a serious performer. And if she is performing in my space, it will be considered a serious performance and it will be reviewed. But yes, we have too many dancers, too few opportunities. But I'll tell you where the glut is. We don't have enough dancers who continue after age 35. You know that age between 30 and 35 is when the dancers start falling off. The, the same thousand dancers could perhaps start schools, wherever they are. They can go back to their hometowns and they could start schools. And um, we say in um, Chennai or in Tamil Nadu, Tariki Venda or a dance school, that is if you trip and fall, there is a dance school right there. And I think it's the same in Bangalore, the city of Bangalore. There's so many. And in Bangalore, you have many styles of classical dance as well. But where is the glut? Uh, the problem comes not with the guru and the students. This past Vijay Dashmi, Dashera, uh, teachers uh, recorded a record number of new, new students from across the world record number of new students, online registration. So they've got twice and three times the number of students that would normally come uh, with the tray and the respect that you give on the Dasara day for the teacher when you start a class. I'll tell you the problem. It's not the guru. It's the parents of the students. It's the parents of the students that are in such a hurry that before their child either finishes 12th and goes off to professional college, wherever, wherever that they are supposed to go, um, medical, you know, IT, where, aeronautical, whatever it be, they must finish Tarangetram. 
So the Arangetum, of course, has now become a big business model. We can talk about it a little later. But um, when, and then it's not, doesn't stop with Arangetum. The parents want them to at least have two or three Sabha performances in the season. So then they start offering money for the opportunity. So then, the, and we came back and said market, it's a market economy. So then when money is offered and money is displayed, you will have on the other side, you will have say, okay, so now this is going, this is what's happening. So let's now create slots. The two o'clock slot, so many thousand rupees. 4.30 slot, so much. Seven o'clock slot, so much. So while this is never printed on a, on a menu card, it's never openly advertised. You will not see it on social media, but it's like the best kept secret. Yeah, so that's where I think good talented performers with parents who may not have the means to pay for these opportunities. Now, what happens is that a good performer will then keep, keep getting shut out. And then the good performer will lose heart. They'll wait one year, two year, three year. They, they, they may do the, you know, the proper thing, send in a request or send in a video or send in a clip and without the money. And that's when they lose heart and then they sort of give up. And they stop, they leave the art. So too many dancers, too few opportunities, um, very ambitious, overambitious parents who are actually, who have actually spoiled and corrupted the scene. Parents in collusion with the organizers. You know, you're described as an in, in intersectionist and your work views with many disciplines of dance, theater, spoken word, ritual, archaeology, dramaturgy, and even women issues. So the question is, as much as a dancer is critiqued on perfection, are dancers rewarded rightly for their ingenuity? No, there is creativity is not something that you can touch. You cannot put a price on Creativity, ideas, ingenuity, if it, if it uh, culminates in a product that you can touch and feel, then there is a value to it. You can be a creative clothes designer, you have something to sell. You can be a creative sculptor, painter, craftsman, you create a product out of yourself. Even a musician can create a CD, a recording. Dance you are the factory, you are the machine, you are the operating machine, you are the operating system, and it's created only when you move, when you are activated. When you end the movement and the dance, the dance is over. It only lives in the minds of the audience. And quite honestly, uh, I think you will agree with me that a recording or a DVD of a dance never quite, never quite captures the immediacy of that live performance. So uh, for me, dance is both powerful and vulnerable, you know, so it's, it's caught in that. And in the hierarchy of the arts, it's always at the bottom of the totem pole of the arts, because it takes so much, it gives so little. And uh, a dancer's life is actually quite brief, because the body, um, can last you for what, 30 years, 40 years. 
and uh, in the in the olden days because the dance was gentler today there's so much physicality and so much athleticism that now we're having uh, dancers with younger dancers with, with more injuries so i don't know how what about their longevity if they will be dancing in their 60s 70s and 80s like some of the earlier generation did you touched upon the kind of work that i do which really brings many disciplines together that's the way i've been educated and that's that's my interest uh, theater and visual design fashion design te fabrics textiles props music world music but how do you get rewarded at the end of it it becomes only a, the final product is that performance and it will then uh, when i was first creating the kind of work i was doing there was nobody else sort of creating that kind of work maybe malika sarabhai was but she was far more feminist a most stridently feminist and i was trying to work by re by recovering the mythology and the characters from history legend and iconography and relooking at them and questioning them like meenakshi with the three breasts or surpanakha's uh, why is female desire such a taboo or with the case of ahalya uh, is uh, why are people saying that she was tricked why can't a woman woman have desire why can't a woman who's beautiful and neglected show that she wants to be loved so i was trying to ask those questions and use my training and there was nobody around in at my time who was doing the kind of work in dance i so i went into theater and i had to find other people in theater that were sort of thinking on the lines that i was thinking people like veena pani chawla people like neelam mansing chaudhary so the kind of camaraderie and links and colleagueship and collaborations that i created to feed my dance art was actually from outside dance from theater i would say that when i got the sangeet natak academy award which is the presidential medal for contemporary dance it was probably 10 years later than what i i think i should have received it but if you are not a classical dancer in india it's very hard for you to actually get uh, described because in india you kind of hello i'm anita ratnam and i'm a contemporary dancer oh what does that mean uh do you do bollywood do you do so you either have to be classical or you have to be bollywood you know this space that we that we call contemporary dance which is of course now lots and lots of young in wonderful performers are inhabiting the space 30 years ago there were not that many when i was doing my work 30 31 years ago so uh, it comes late recognition comes later but you have to believe in what you do and in spite of indifferent reviews in spite of people walking out of your performance which i have had you have to you have to believe that that what you want to do has value that what interests you will ultimately reach someone see that self belief has to be enormous you have to really be consumed by it now that brings to the question of nartaki how did this concept come because you experienced all these issues and then started nartaki or was it that you it just came out of a coffee discussion with some friend how did this happen Uh, Nartaki started in New York City. It was um, 1990, 1989, and uh, Rajiv Gandhi was uh, campaigning for re-election. And 
I remember the American television uh, channel network called ABC. And ABC had a show called Good Morning America. They still have a Good Morning America. The host was David Hartman. And they were going to India to do a series of hard stories, politics, and social issues. They wanted to do a few soft stories. And in the soft stories, they were wanting to do a story on this great Yamini Krishnamurti. So you can imagine that in 1989, the great celebrated Yamini Krishnamurti, neither the Indian consulate in New York or the Indian embassy in Washington had her address or contact number. All they wanted was how do we reach Ms. Yamini Krishnamurti? That got me thinking. They called me because I was in television. I was a television producer. I was producing shows on India. I had a studio in New York. So they called me. And at that time, there was only the fax and there was a phone. So I put in a call to my parents uh, and I called um, a, a dancer friend in Delhi. And I said, this is all I want. I want you to get me the phone number of Yamini Krishnamurti. In 24 hours, I got a fax with the phone number and her address, which I gave, handed over to ABC. That got me thinking. Somebody as famous as Yamini Krishnamurti, there is no way, there is no contact. The Indian government does not have an artist database. They don't have it. So why not I do a phone book? That's how the genesis started. Now, I come from a family of self-starters. I come from a family of entrepreneurs for over a century. My family has been pioneers. They've, and I am the only professional artist on both sides of my family. So I know what it is to have an idea and go with it, to, to be a self-starter. So what, what did I do? I said, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to do a phone book. Phone like a directory. And it took me two years, all of 1990 and all of 1991, to compile, I think, almost 1,000 names and addresses. And it was not easy. One had to write letters. One had to write to people in eight or 10 different cities and say, get me 20 artists from your city, 30 artists from your city. And of course, the main cities were Calcutta, Bangalore, Hyderabad, Delhi, Mumbai, Chennai. Those were the main six cities. Uh, Dr. Cyril Kothari, bless his soul, uh, said, I'll write, the, I'll write the descriptions. I broke it up into all the different styles. And that's how I got started with, with a phone book. And I have to uh, uh, share this news. I went to New Delhi and I met with ICCR. I met with the Department of Culture. I met with the Sangeet Natak Academy. And I said, I just want the addresses of your artists. Please, I, I'm putting out a phone book. And all three of them said the same thing to me. And this is in the year 1990. So 31 years ago, they said, please don't bother Anita Ji. We're going to bring out a book in six months. 31 years ago. Uh, I said, sir, yours will be very extensive. I just want to do a small book. That's how Nartaki started. A phone book. There, was, there were no emails then. 1992 was the first phone book. And Nartaki, a directory of Indian dance, started as a phone book database. And to get some phone numbers, some gurus called me to say, I will not give you the numbers of my main students because if I give away their numbers, you will contact them directly. I mean, that was the kind of sometimes resistance, suspicion, 
and paranoia that I found with Kathak and Kuchipudi gurus in particular. The second edition was in 1997. By that time, email had come into India. We had a lot of phone numbers were changing from six digits to seven digits. And then uh, it was, and you know, overnight in many Indian cities, our addresses changed. Our house, our house numbers changed. The local corporation came and changed our house numbers. So uh, my number, which was number 20, overnight we wake up and it's now become number 10. So I said, look, we can't keep printing. We are now going online. And so that's what we did. 1992 was the first phone book. 1997 was the second. We had 1,000 names in the first. We had 3,000 names in the second. And in 2000, we went online. April 15th, 2000. And it was not just the names of dancers, dance schools, uh, costume, instrument makers. We tried to really bring the whole ecosystem of dance into that. And Nartaki was online on April 15, 2000, just took the database and put it online to say, look, it's free. Now, you, who, have, who do you want to contact? Contact. Because I really believe in this, you know, the, public, the sharing of information. Uh, you can, anybody who knows me will say, if, if uh, I'm a great person to put people in contact with one another. And uh, I feel that, you know, why not? If something good happens, why not? So that, in that philosophy, it's like, here's the database, here's the phone book. And since it went online, 21 years later, we are talking and it's become a brand. Nartaki has become the go-to place for anything to do with, with Indian dance, especially for those of you who live outside India. It has become you know, the, it's become the wallpaper, it's become the go-to um, site that people want to read reviews about. I'm very proud. Coming yeah. to the research work also, how did you publish all these papers? It didn't stop there. How did then it emerge into a large collection of, you know, this research work and other things that you publish online? I'll give you an example. There was a lovely movie in the 90s, I think, starring American actor Kevin Costner. It's a movie about this person in the middle of the cornfields of Iowa in the Midwest of the New York. He, he hears a voice and says, build a baseball field. And people think he's crazy. And all he hears is, build it and they will come. He hears the sentence again and again, build it and they will come. And he builds a baseball field. What Nartaki.com did was build that field of possibilities. Once, but it was not automatic. Believe me, there was a lot of work that had to be done. We had to reach out to people to say, start writing for us, send us articles. Because traditional media was still very much there. All the newspapers were there. All the big name writers were writing for dance. But we found that they would write about one particular artist or they would write about one particular performance. And there were so many performances happening. And my interest was in theater. It was in music. It was in new music. It was in what was happening with Indian dance around the world, with the diaspora. Because I, I had lived in America. I came back. I started coming back in 1990 to come back to live in India. So I know about life in the US. I know about many of my my, um, my generation, women who had started dance schools 
And I'm saying, who's going to write about them? How are we going to get news about what they're doing and how they're teaching and what their students are like? So there was a lot of requests. There was a lot of reaching out and making connections and saying, why don't we send us a short report? There was a lot of nurturing of young writers, teaching them how to write for online. So in a sense, we were like cutting through the bushes, you know, and creating that path. Today, now you've got so many sites, it's easy to have a Facebook page. You, you can just have a virtual presence. But we literally built it. You know, I've had a website since 1996. That's very early. I've been very early because I believed in technology. I've seen what technology could do in my years in New York. So I've had a website since 1996. Now everybody's got a website or whatever, Reels, Instagram, technology is evolving so fast, even I can't keep track of it. But this, what you talk about, this volume and now the archives and the database we have and the kind of information we have, dance history, it's, it's so tremendous. It's huge. It's tremendous what Nartiki.com has come to both have and symbolize and stand for and represent. Most importantly, Shwetnag, I think it is trusted. It's trusted because it, I've not made it about me. You know, I've not insisted that you cover me all the time. I've not insisted that I get featured. Yes, I have a space in which I write. I write a monthly message about what I feel, what I saw, what I observe, an opinion. But that's mine. Many times I've, um, uh, being, being, a, being a journalist, and once again, I said the Gemini, the Janice case, there could be an artist whom I have criticized in my writing, in my personal writing, but the same artist could have a very flattering review on the website. So I have not, I take a macro view and I feel that you need to collaborate, hire good people. You've got to hire good people and pay them. Because my father always said, you pay peanuts and you'll get monkeys. So hire good people, pay them, treat them like professionals. That way you can also demand that they also produce or, you know, stay vigilant. So today, uh, even I cannot believe uh, what Nartaki has become. I mean, it's become something that people trust People look to, people ask to be featured, Nartaki is cited, Nartaki is quoted. And quite honestly, today, to be featured in Nartaki is, has become far more prestigious than to be featured in any of the Indian national dailies. You established this, and then how did you think of the uh, cash flow of this uh, model? You know, you need money to sustain this uh, idea. The website as such doesn't cost that much to, you know, you know websites. So just to set up a website, to monitor the website, our archives are all downloaded on our hard disk. So basically you're looking at a webmaster, you're looking at the cost of maintaining a website, you're looking at um, content editors, you're looking at people sharing information, pictures, videos, and all that. So you do have a, a small uh, three, four, five member, like a team. Now since COVID, uh, we have a line producer, we have an editor. So our technical side we have added, which we didn't need, didn't feel the need until uh, the digital became so important and so crucial. We started by saying this is free. Then we started having a membership. Then we started saying take an ad or a banner. 
And basically for me, I wanted to first start first subsidizing it till it started paying for itself. Because in the culture field, uh, there was no way for us to go to any corporate and make them believe that a digital platform had any value, especially in the year 2000. Okay, people were still wanting to see hard copy. Like I want to see my ad in a newspaper in a half page or a quarter page. And um, it took a lot of convincing and it, it's still a hit or miss thing. You know, now I think digital ads are, you know, gaining traction. But for me, I wanted to start making a certain amount of money and looking at how the revenue model could increase. So we had um, ads. We took an editorial policy that, that we're not going to feature paid arangetrams, you know, uh, because then there would be no, no closing the floodgates. But we took ads for an arangetram. If somebody said so-and-so has an arangetram, we would take an ad. So say we had um, annual something, say 20 lakhs, for instance, I'm just give, giving you a number. I said, okay, let, let's try to get half. And where will the other half of the money come from? I was doing a lot of corporate, corporate speaking, putting together corporate and uh, dance packages, what happened uh, in, in five-star hotels between drinks and dinner, where I could charge, you know, 3,000 euros, for instance, for that package of dancers, folk dancers. That's how I would put it into feeding the Nartaki platform. So I was using money from one into the other. I still don't take any salary from Nartaki. I want to make sure that it grows actually. So uh, I cannot say that it is making a huge amount of money. I cannot say that it's making a profit. But my aim is that I don't put money in. I just want to be able to, between the other work that I do, uh, I do some um, modeling for textile people uh, and I'll put that money in because one day's work, you get paid very well. So I put that, so all the money I earn, I put back into Nartaki because it's very important for me. You know, I, I, I don't own brick and mortar dance studios. I don't have a building. I don't have a school. I'm not a guru. I don't have students. For me, I built this completely as a digital platform, which, which means that it can, it can stay. But now with, um, with COVID, I would say that I have to relook at um, I have to relook at the financial marketing aspect. For instance, now we have the Department of Culture, Government of India, that has just started giving its okay to supporting online festivals now. So our Shivaratri festival on March 11th, the five hours of nonstop programming, we have support from the government. So I would say that it will never be something where you sit back and just see the money roll in. No, this is not an Indian idol. This is not something that's going to just, you know, automatically have the cash registered, cash registers rolling. Or at least my generation has had a kind of an altruistic uh, idea of what the arts should be, but also a pragmatic, realistic idea of that if we hire people, we have to pay them, which includes paying my dancers, paying the writers. So there is a budget. Right now, during COVID, with all the money I've saved from not having live performances, I've been able to put it into growing, uh, growing the Nartaki family. But uh, to answer your question once again, money is in teaching dance. Money is not in performing dance.
money is in teaching dance it's in the dance classes in the skype classes it's the zoom classes that's where the money is coming from yes it's maybe the teacher is working harder but that is a business model and another business model is the arangate trip and uh, very well put uh, anita so now you told how you built it and why you built it i would like to ask uh, could you tell us about the books and films that had profound impact on you oh there have been many books over the years i am an english literature student so of course all the romantic poets uh were wonderful to me i loved irish poet yeats wb yeats uh the book that uh, had the earliest profound influence on me i would say would be uh, the tamil anandarigiran series in which kalki had serialized his ponniyan selvan and parthiban kanave that's where that's where mythological fiction came alive because my mother would read this to me every every week when the magazine came and then in school uh, in school i read Daphne du Maurier's classic called Rebecca and it was that gothic the gothic novel came alive for me and then there were other lots and lots of authors poets uh, i love poetry but um, you know there are books that shake you books that change you and um, and one of them was to to kill a mockingbird was a classic for me remember i am a product of the 1950s so you have to know that it's a, diff- a very different generation from the generation that's going to be listening to me so for me a lot of the classic writers ernest hemingway you know those were the the years of um, reading a, a lot of biographies and autobiographies of great artists so of salvador dali and of picasso and amrita shergill and um, you know so i used to want to know the lives of creative people now i've uh, once kindle came i just downloaded a whole bunch of books i have to say one of the favorite genres i have is um, historical and mythological fiction i want to know how people take events in history and create new stories out of them so egypt has always been a source of fascination for me old cultures egypt greece rome uh the middle east mesopotamia indigenous uh, cultures of south america mexico australia native america so i've always looked at writers from there isabel elande is one of the great chilean writers pablo neruda is another poet joy harjo uh, current native american poet laureate of the us is somebody's works i have loved things that make an impact on me can also be a play you know uh movies i have i've loved um tamil movies that had mythological uh, uh, you know resonances uh, we had things called sampurna sampurna ramayanam we had tiruvalayadal the stories of shiva so these were all while growing up and we also had uh, things like romulus and remus and we had the 10 commandments and we had ben hur those are the movies that we grew up with cleopatra and now you know i want movies and poetry and writing that actually shakes me out of a comfort zone i read a beautiful a fantastic book uh by tara westover called educated about how this young girl a true story she escapes the most repressive regressive small town community in america and her grandmother helps her escape and how she 
you know, educates herself in her life. So more than fiction now, I like real life stories of triumph and success and survival. Uh, because I think that um, we can lapse into Marvel Avengers, heroes, uh, Super Cop, the Sherlock Holmes, uh, you know, great acting. But I think what will move, what moves me is contemporary writing, contemporary fiction, uh, stories of the here and now, and most particularly women writers, women's voices. And now it's so amazing that in India, we have so many women writing poetry, short stories, and um, the digital platform has now uh, come up with animated books, e-books. Uh, I'm a great reader. I have over 1,000 books in my library. My mother would fight to always give them away. And I would tell my the driver, don't you dare take the books to the lending library. If you do, you'll just see what happens. And so my mother would give the books and he would go like with full circle and come and give it back to me in the back door. So, so my, my father and mother uh, and my father would say, look at the bill you're running up at, at the bookshop. So that was my treat, you know, to go to the bookshop. And um, I grew up before Amar Chitra Katha came, you know, where the, all those comic books about Indian culture and history. How should a student of dance who has just completed his or her Arangretam proceed to establish uh, in the field of dance? I think the first step will be to uh, seek the guidance of the guru. Because I think the guru if, uh, is senior, more experienced. If the guru is already a performing artist, uh, I think that the student, hopefully with the guru's uh, guidance and support and blessing, will be able to start getting some performance opportunities. Today, young students are lucky because there are so many group dance opportunities where they can actually go on stage uh, even before Arangetram to be part of a group production, which was not there during our time. Sometimes when the student uh, doesn't get along with the guru or her parents have fought with the guru, then it becomes a little more challenging. How does one... Uh, establish a professional repu uh, you know, reputation. I would say now that it's very important for the dancer to establish what is called a showreel. It's important for the dancer to get a nice five or 10 minute showreel now because a lot of people are saying, send me a link. To have the dancer create her own YouTube channel, her own social media presence, uh, and have and be very careful about what he or she posts on that social media presence. Because what happens is now, all employers also go, go to your social media profiles and they're checking it out to see whether you, know, you, you have posted a drunk photo of yourself or whatever, the inappropriate. So a professional outlook with a social media page that posts and you have a good show reel. Nowadays, nobody looks at print material. Everybody's asking for everything on, on the digital way. So to create an e-brochure, Find somebody who can write uh, well. Don't have somebody who, who writes that this is the most brilliant, most amazing dancer when you're 16 or 18 years old. You know, uh, be realistic. Find a way to say, okay, now I've spent this much of investment learning the dance and I've finished Marangetram. Now I want to test the fields as a professional. And I would say today's young people are talking to each other as well. They're talking to each other and there's so many more opportunities in what I call informal spaces that are coming up. There are spaces that are hopefully looking at work in progress. I'll talk about a space in Bangalore. It's called Shunya. 
Shunya is a, is a creative collective space in which people can either use it for rehearsals where they're creating a new work or they can actually show work that is being incubated, like a work in progress. I think it's very important for young people to start building a small group of like-minded friends, not necessarily from dance, who can come and watch a rehearsal and give, them, give you honest feedback. But the professional profile that the dancer seeks to build should be done uh, with care and should be done by consulting a couple of professionals. How do you create uh, a showreel? How do you create uh, good headshots that you will send? How do you create rehearsal shots? How do you create some nice performance shots? So that it's important to, to ally and collaborate with your own friends. And now technology, you can just look at a camera and it's, it's all available in, in HD. That should be the first step. Where when you put your foot forward, you have as well a professional face. That you mean that you, your intention is professional. You seek an opportunity to show your merit. By just going, dragging your parents, please give my daughter an opportunity, please do this. Those days are over. Those days are over. Yes, India can still work with, you know, who knows, I know this person, I know that. But generally... Generally, it would be good for all dancers to create the right profile. So that would be for me the first step. Second step would be, don't think you want to go to the Music Academy or to Kamani Auditorium in your first attempt. Be willing to slowly go from smaller performances and build. And it's very important to believe in your work and to believe that you still have more to learn. You still have more to grow. And be open to criticism, constructive criticism. Don't say, what do you know if somebody says, I think you can do this better. And so always have that, you know, keep your mind open for growth. That would be for me one of the always constant, you know, advice to give to dancers at any age, especially for those starting out. But to build colleagueship with like-minded people in the arts and theater, writing, literature, poetry, photography, fashion, ecology, environment. I think that colleagueship is very important for a dancer because a dancer can get very narcissistic and keep feeding off the fact that he or she looks fantastic or terrific or beautiful. And if you keep listening to that from your parents uh, or your, the people who are on your side, you need the other side. You need a check and balance. And you have to find that check and balance yourself. In dance, what values of the past should we hold on to and what values should we let go? Because you speak about having this mindset of people where you should hold on, but you should know, uh, you should know when to let go. What, what values of the past should we hold on and what should we let go? No, there are time-honored values, discipline, punctuality, dedication, uh, an application, the, the right intention. These are all just time-honored values. I don't think they will go out of style. But today, a dancer, a young artist is called upon to be flexible, to be multifaceted, to be able to even articulate your practice. You could be a fabulous performer, but on a platform like this, you have to talk about the work. Uh, you know, you you have to be able to talk about the work. And most of the work that classical dancers do is about uh, the composers are all dead. 
right? They're all 200, 300, 400, whatever, years ago, maybe a thousand years ago. So what can we say about the composition? So the flexibility and the multi-training that a dancer needs today is far more than what a dancer required in my time. Because I was inter interested in literature and writing and public speaking and debating, I developed these skills. I developed articulation through my years in television and theater. Uh, dance didn't teach me this. I had to go out and acquire these, these other skills. Dancers today have access to learn how to talk, how to modulate their voice, how to speak when they explain an item. And so these are very, very important skills that are required. So there is now the, the demand for a dancer to be multidimensional, to be flexible, to be, uh, to be able to look at your dance professionally. But because in India, the paying opportunities for a performer is not that great, develop another sort of a second career almost that can bring in some money. What else can you do well, you know? So that is something that I want young people to think of seriously. Because unless we have a lot of family support in terms of resources, it's hard to develop only a performance profile. And if you don't want to teach, then what else can you do to feed into your dance? So I know today's young people who, are, who have a day job in economics, who have a day job in teaching, or they find, or some of them are even in community health medicine, but they find a way to feed their dance financially as well. Could you tell us about Neo Nartaki? That's a new initiative from Nartaki. I thought after 20 years, it's time to step back. 20 years used to be called a generation. Now I think every five years, there is a, there is a generation. It was time to uh, bring in uh, a platform that was a brave space and a safe space to discuss so many issues, especially about diversity, gender, e equality, and sexuality, uh, the emergence of the subaltern voices, the marginalized voices, the LGBTQIA plus kind of energies. And Nartaki was not going to do it. My generation of uh, people, very few of my generation actually will acknowledge that it's time to allow other voices that are shaping the, the cultural discourse for the present and the future. So I thought instead of trying to crowd the Nartaki platform, why don't I just create a whole different space called Neo Nartaki? So Neo, of course, is new and riding on the Nartaki brand rather than creating a completely new name. And I said, let me only work with young people, a young team, a young editorial team, and let's look only at an age group that will end at 39. And let's look at what they think. Let's get in a guest editor and let's, let's talk about some of the senior people and who could be, what are role models like today? Who are the role models people are looking at? I don't think young people are looking at 80-year-olds and 90-year-olds as role models anymore. They're looking at maybe their own generation uh, people as, as role models. So there's a lot of hierarchical leveling that has happened. There's a lot of uh, all these other kinds of statues that have been demolished, you know, and blasted away. So Neo Nartiki was uh, is that platform in which one can one can discuss all kinds of issues if one wants. And um, so we're always coming up with ideas of Instagram takeovers, of, you know, uh, we have something called Decode in which we talk about issues that really matter uh, and things that I think the Nartiki space was getting a bit uh, stodgy and a bit too set in its ways. 
So I needed to open up and make space for all this because I'm very interested in the younger generation. I'm a mother. I'm a single parent of two lovely kids. My son is 30. My daughter is 32. What are they thinking? Are they really interested in the arts? What would they choose to go to? So, and you know, my daughter works with animal welfare and the environment. My son is in food entrepreneurship. So they inhabit different worlds, but they represent a generation of uh, artists and the people who are going to be consuming the art. So uh, I thought it was important to, if I can't keep my finger on the pulse of everything that's happening, I need to have a group of people who can. For me, that was important. So Neonartiki is just over, what, seven months. It's very young. So we'll see where it goes. I have great dreams for it. What type of entrepreneurial activities are needed to support the ecosystem as on today? We need more people to be in, in the creative industries. That is definitely um, your generation, Shwetnag, and people younger than you. So many are returning to India. And in India, because it's a country of so many needs and wants, and it's a country that lives in so many centuries at the same time, people think that it's more noble to go and work for the disadvantaged, the mentally challenged, the socially challenged, the poor, to work in education, to work in uh, cultural re restoration. But people are not looking at culture and the arts as an actual viable win-win situation. I think corporations need to be able to hire artists or hire a company and give them a paying wage, like they hire cricketers, you know, or they hire sports people. I think artists should be on company payrolls, given a certain fee wage, and then allowed to do their art. Or a dance company should be taken by a corporate and given a certain amount of money and say maybe the premiere of their new work will be for the, the company employees or there can be a nice big performance and wherever the company goes it will be you know uh, this with the logo of that particular company or could say the premier was commissioned by I think these are ways in which I think Indian corporates Indian techies should be able to adopt artists and the arts and I think that way rather than just Calling them to perform, if you have a foreign collaborator to say and sit back and watch Bharatanatyam or Kathak or Odissi or Manipuri, I think this will have a much long-term uh, benefit and something that can work both ways. Also, you know, dancers um, can work about, can work in areas of health, can work in areas of well-being, can work in areas of dance therapy. I know people in America who have used dance and then are using it in terms of um, how to rehabilitate people who returned from the Iraq war. You know, people who have really come with post-traumatic stress disorder. So dance can be used. The vocabulary of dance, the techniques of dance can be used also for other, for other aspects. But if corporations and those who have money and the resources and the bandwidth and the profit loss balance sheet and the return on investment, they, they should be able to accommodate arts and the artist. I don't think that they should just go and just buy a painting and hang it in the boardroom. They should be able to invest in the live arts. For me to invest in a dancer or a musician or an actor, for me, that would be really a wonderful way in which a corporation shows a commitment. 
in the West, you do have corporations that have sustained support for dance companies. I just saw a fabulous collaboration between the American Ballet Theater, ABT, and a design shoe company, where they, they designed a fashion slipper based on a ballet shoe, and they're selling it at $335, beautiful with a luxury shoe company, to say the, all profits will go to support American Ballet Theater. So these kinds of very interesting, exciting collaborations can happen. But we need to be thinking out of the box. And for that, we need marketing to work. I'd like to have marketing experts come and sit with dance companies to say, how can we take marketing uh, mantras, marketing techniques, and how can we energize it into the live arts sector? So I think there's a great scope in a country like India and a society like ours to once again reposition the live arts and to make it something that has a great value. Because I think it is really a win-win situation. You know, in the arts, there are no losers. There are only winners, as opposed to education, politics, and sports. So it is my hope that I would see more companies, more multinationals who look at the arts in a more serious way rather than uh, with mere tokenism. My last question to you, Anita, is there a difference between contemporary and fusion? Because uh, today we have a lot of artists trying to do uh, classical dance on the film music. Or Is this uh, called contemporary or is contemporary definition totally different? Cinema is popular culture. So to be able to take a film song, even a beautifully popular film song, and to dance it in Bharatanatyam costume or Odissi costume or whatever it is, that is a separate genre. I would say You're, you are you are stepping into the area of popular culture. Um, I don't even think you can use the word fusion. I'm not a great fan of it, but you can use that. But when we really talk about contemporary dance in India, I'm going to say one thing. Contemporary dance in India is still young. You know, it, it doesn't have a life of 50 years. Although we do mark Uday Shankar uh, at, at a certain time and we mark Chandraleka at a certain time, but contemporary dance is an urban preoccupation. Contemporary dance in India is happening in cities, not in the smaller towns. It's happening in cities, mostly with people trained in classical dance. Some are now from Bollywood. But now we have schools of contemporary dance that are training in methods, sometimes using Western contemporary dance techniques and also using martial arts, culinary payat, and um, meditative arts like yoga and tai chi and developing vocabularies now. Contemporary dance in India is more engaged with the politics of today. Classical dance is engaged only with reproducing what is learned and from an older and a more ancient traditional system. So for classical dancers to call themselves contemporary will not be honest. And for somebody doing film music to dance, they should call their work fusion or film dance, but not contemporary dance. I think we, we should not devalue this very exciting space of contemporary dance in which people are rejecting stories and mythology and focusing on found objects or nightmare or there's something on something called the flight of the bird, something just like that, something it can sound almost mundane, but it demands a lot because you don't have a ready story, a ready narrative, a ready script, and contemporary dance is trying to create from scratch. So for me, contemporary dance is very precious. It needs to be protected and should not be encroached upon on one side by the classical dancers and the other side 
from popular culture. Because although the training could have been largely from classical dance, these are performers now who are really trying to find new ways of speaking and communicating. Anita, thank you so much for coming and enlightening me, at least. You know, I have learned so many things today and uh, really you have touched upon the values, the way you, you know, made uh, Nartaki, Neo Nartaki. This will be an inspiration to the generation to come and thank you so much for making time and coming to Indian Entrepreneurs. It was really an honor to host you on the show. Thank you for asking me. Thank you for showing the interest in the work I do. Thank you for noticing lots of small things for doing your homework and reading up on things that I care about deeply and I hope that the listeners and people who will ultimately listen to our conversation will be able to take back something from it. Thank you so much for your time. Namaste. Namaste. So, I hope you found this conversation with Anita Ratnam quite insightful and you were able to learn about the philosophy and values of Nartaki. We shall catch up soon on our next episode where we will be bringing you stories of entrepreneurs from the performing arts landscape of India. For instant updates, do subscribe to Kala Tapasya on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you and have a good day.